Hey everybody, welcome to the PE podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Lisa Emery, who's the CIO at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, alongside that, she's also the chair of the London CIO Council. Lisa, we start actually the conversation with Lisa talking through her first job, which was um, filling jam donuts in a baker's, which is incidentally put her off donuts for life. Um, we then talk through how she followed in her mum's footsteps to become a biomedical scientist um, and then a number of uh, IT roles before um, becoming an NHS CIO, um, which she's now uh, been the CIO of two trusts. Um, we talk through her journey through the healthcare sector as a whole, her approach to leadership, how the outlooks has really been changed by leaders who have inspired her through her career. Lisa's got an obvious passion for um, for ensuring women get opportunities in technology and leadership. So we talk through her passion in that as well. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. Hi everyone, before we get into this conversation, we just want to give a shout out to this episode sponsor, Common Time. ICOM, a next generation clinical communications app produced by Common Time, has demonstrated itself as the market leading application to help replace aging bleep technology currently delivered by pages. Streamlining clinical communications whilst providing a secure and most importantly integrated clinical messaging tool that provides real time instant messaging for all staff. Common Time understands the structure of NHS organizations. As such, ICOM allows its users to interact as individuals, in groups, or directly using their roles and responsibilities within their team. The application hosts impressive features that include automating workflows, escalating or diverting any undelivered or unactioned requests, as well as automating the booking of beds and operating theatres. Common Time are now working in partnership with eight NHS trusts in helping them to achieve their overarching digital strategy. So, Lisa, um, I read somewhere that one of your first jobs was working in a bakery filling jam donuts. So <laughs> how, how did you go then from a part-time baker to a full-time <laughs> biomedical scientist? Because there's not, you know, I can't patch the no. journey up. There's, I suppose there's a mild amount of science involved in there, broadly, but not really. No, that was a, <laughs> that was a, a much, well, it was all right, it was a Saturday job, but... Um, when we moved out of the area where I was living when we grew up, was, I, I, was, I just looked for a Saturday job. And my dad used to drop me off at the baker's at about half six in the morning. And for some reason, I got the jam in the donuts job, um, which was, it just put me off donuts for life, if I'm honest. But um, yeah, you used to have to just jam two donuts into this little squishy jam machine and then roll them in sugar. And it was hundreds of them. Um, the advantage being, I guess, working in the baker's, you got to take free cakes home for everybody. But I couldn't really look a donut in the eye for quite a long time. <laughs> um, so, yeah it was a yeah interesting so if you get off so of really now yeah, no I, I, I'll, I'll look at them but i'm not mad on jam donuts really anymore yeah no i'm not surprised so 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 you so, you, so you're um you then were kind of a, a scientist weren't you as, as kind of your first roles within yeah. the NHS and yeah on. so, so this, well i i i looked at um i actually wanted to get into teaching um and i didn't as it happens i didn't get the um results i wanted to get into to do that and my mum at the time was actually, was a biomedical scientist as well. Yeah. Um, and she'd said to me, look, you know, this is, a, this is actually a really interesting career. Why don't you have a look at it? You've always liked science, which I had. Um, have a look at it. And she'd always been, you know, loved her job. Um, so she sort of put me on to that as an idea. And I went down to see a team down at West Hart, NHS Trust, and said, you know, have you got anything going? And they offered me a trainee position. So 
I think it, it, it was fairly quick and instinctive actually. So it went from, well, I'll, I'll go and teach to actually I quite like the sound of this. Um, yeah. So I just enrolled on as a trainee, more or less straight out of um, sixth form. Ah, so, so was it like you, so, so what did you want to do growing up then? Because it sounds like, that, so it was teaching, mm. was your, your kind of number one? Yeah, something like that. But I thought I'd always really enjoyed science. So yeah. I, when I was at school, I'd, um, I took, uh, chem, so it was O-level days, so that tells you how old I am. But um, I took, I wanted to take chemistry, biology and physics. Yeah. And it was back in the, and this, all, this partly goes back to why I get so, uh, agitated about making sure women get opportunities in STEM but um, to, in order for me to be allowed to take those three science O levels my mum and dad had to come up to the school and explain how you know it was okay for girls to do that and I would do a good job because um, it just wasn't really seen as something that would be a, a girly set of subjects. Say that again. So No seriously seriously um, the idea yeah, that come time up, basically, of, basically say, yeah, no, Lisa will try really hard during these subjects. Yeah, it was, it was just that it, doing things like physics and chemistry at that time, at, along with so all three sciences, which I know are combined in the GCSE now, aren't they? But at the time, they were separate O-levels. Right. And the notion of taking them for your options and deciding to do them was much more seen as a, a, you know, something boys did more. Um, and it was an unusual ask for, for girls to want to do three sciences. So it was, it was a conversation that had to then be had to sort of almost like to vouch, I suppose, for the idea that I'd, I'd stick with it. In this so day and age. It feels it, bizarre now. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I can't get my head around it. I can't imagine a school. And, and you know, part of, part of me doing these programs, I'm, I'm interviewing people that are, uh, from across the public sector, so mm. um, um, CEOs of multi academy trust, which is the new schools model, where um, they have a number of schools in them. But I could just never ever imagine. I, I can't even comprehend it happening back then. But because it's just it was, so it was far... a really good school. In fairness, yeah. I think it was just the the time I was yeah. in. Yeah, so It wasn't really seen as a. It was a, it was an unusual career choice, I suppose, to go down a sort of a more of science because I liked science and languages. Right. So ideally, I'd have done language and science but that was probably seen as a bit of a big ask. Um, and so I did do three sciences. So I'd always had a, I'd always enjoyed it. And as I say, my mum had always been um, in a scientific career as well. So she was a histopathologist. Um, and I think that probably piqued my interest anyway, because I knew what she did for a living. I found mm -hmm. it really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so it was almost, although I kind of thought I quite liked the idea of teaching, I think science wasn't exactly a difficult pull for me. Makes sense. So that's probably why. Yeah, it makes sense, you know mum's got the career in it and yeah and, and kind yeah. Of, um, yeah you, you knew a bit about it right so so so, so let, let's go back a bit then so talk to you about your childhood so where did you grow up so I um I was actually born in Watford but then um we moved across when I was quite young to Harrow so grew up sort of school years I guess in Harrow and Wildstone um, around that way um, and then well, actually as a family we moved back into the Watford area uh sort of 82 83 so um, I spent sort of a, a good lump of years in Harrow and then came back to place of birth. Um, yeah. at, at that point when my, when my little, my little, little sister was, um, you know, not long, well, baby still really, I suppose. I don't, I don't know what precipitated that, but we, um, yeah, we all came back over in that direction. Ah, and so then your first role was at Watford General, wasn't it? It was at Watford the, General, that's yeah. right. So, yeah. so you've been in the NHS for... Well, I know you've had. I know you had a. I know you've gone out into the Middle East. And I did. Stuff and, I did. Um, yeah, and then I, 
So it's, it, it, at one point it was sort of half and half because I'd been supplier side. Um, but yeah, I've been in the NHS for quite a number of years now. So I, I went into the NHS in that type of role, came out um, to go into sort of private work and then across to Middle East and back in again. Um, and then I came back into the NHS uh, in my last role um, and have stayed since actually. So it, it felt like a natural drawback and I, yeah. and I can't see myself at the moment. I can't see myself leaving it again yeah yeah so so we'll come on to um your your role at west hearts mm. um because that was your kind of first cio role wasn't it that's right yeah yeah so let's talk about your kind of career journey up to that point then so so you worked in uh, as a scientist for h- how many years was that yeah so uh, i mean it's like it's one of these things isn't it and you if you talk to different cios you can virtually find that everybody's got a very slightly different journey because um, mm. ha- we haven't had that sort of professional path to being a cio so we've all done something slightly different so i did i, I trained there at west heart at what general at west hearts um and did started my master's degree there and then joined um, the microbiology service at university college hospital london okay um so i completed my master's there and stayed there for I think it was probably about five or six years um, and then got myself got to a position actually I loved it there it's an amazing amazing lab they both were um, I got up to sort of deputy head of the department and I, I don't know I just hit a point I think where I felt like there probably wasn't anywhere else to go career-wise in that so I'd, I'd enjoyed what I was doing um, I was doing a lot of on-call and extra hours and that kind of thing it's never been a particularly well-rewarded profession unfortunately um, and I think a combination of factors just made me think about something different. Um, so I'd got, I'd kind of got, I got, got the masters. I've been doing some research. It's a, it was a brilliant lab. I mean, it's a teaching hospital. There are good opportunities there. Um, I'd been working. I think, I think what probably st- triggered the change was um, both at West Hearts, but even more so at UCLH. I'd started working on IT projects related to the labs. Right. So at, at Watford General, I helped put in the new lab system and helped system manage that. And I'd quite enjoyed that. Um, and then the same opportunity came up at UCLH. So I was sort of seconded out of the lab side for a period to put in a brand new lab um, information system and then start producing information reports and things related to that. Okay. So I'd, I'd sort of been getting more IT focused in that job. Um, and then as part of that UCLH um, secondment, the company that were managing the outsourced IT services for UCLH um, offered me a job with them. Ah, so that was your first then step into yeah. I don't know what what about it felt right, but for for me at that time it seemed like a really nice option. It was a straight you know the chance to try project IT project management out in a standard hours job and see how it worked. Yeah, I was gonna say because you mentioned long hours and on call before. Well, you've definitely gone back to that with, uh, with the long hours with your current role. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it goes around, comes around, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, yeah. definitely. So, so, you, so, it was more of an IT project management role. Is, is your kind of your first step into? Um, yeah, that's right. So it was just a it was a nice company to work for as well, and they were so they, they looked after all of UCLH's IT projects. So, in effect. I just sort of took on a little portfolio of, of projects and worked with them on those. So then wh- when did the roles in, um, when, when did you go out to Middle East? Because that must have been it. Yeah, that's, that's what was probably the oddest trajectory bit of the whole thing and just probably kickstarted a, a, a big change of direction. So 
I'd only been in that role um, at UCLH in the project role for that company for about a year when I got this incredibly what felt like incredibly random phone call to say look um, this role's come up in Dubai um, and what they're looking for um, is somebody that has uh, implemented this particular laboratory system which was the one I'd just done and therefore you know got training in it understands it knows how to build it run it etc um, has project management experience which I then had some of and is, a, and is a lab scientist by background. So it, it was one of those odd things where you think, oh, that's almost written down for me. You know, so really, did someone really get your CV niche. and just write a job yeah. spec off it? Oh, that, exactly <laughs> right. So it's very odd. So uh, to be honest with you, I don't think it was something that I would have necessarily jumped at. But I took, went home and, and I had a chat with my hubby about it. And we sort of said, I said, look, you know, I think this is crazy. I don't... I, I, lovely interesting but forget it and he kind of said well really what why forget it you know we haven't got kids we can we're pretty mobile let's let's have it give it some thought so we we traveled out um and spent a few days there they took us out for a few days to go and see what we thought of the place and we we sort of we had a great time actually and came back and said well actually why why would why not why wouldn't we do it so what year was this that oh now you're asking so that would have been it was around sort of 2000, 2001, around then. So before Dubai became like a fashionable, fashionable place to go to as well then? Yeah, it's, that's right. I mean, you, I'd say that. I mean, it was, it was starting to get a bit more popular, but um, certainly when we were living there, it was, more, it was far less built up for a start. Um, and it, yeah, it wasn't the, the sort of very, you know, A-list snazzy holiday destination. So we lived in some of the older parts of the city. Um, we could, you know, at the point we were there, you could still drive out um, not very far and, and be in the desert and, and out, you know, having picnics and, and exploring and that kind of thing. So we go back, we do go back and see friends there, you know, reasonably regularly. And it's unbelievable how much it's exploded in terms of development in that time. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love Dubai. I love Dubai. And it's you when you drive down like um, so I've um, both times that I've been, I've actually stayed in Ras Al Khaimah. Um, oh yeah, and, yeah. And then done a few days that, visiting. That's pretty. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We stay in a Hilton um, up there, Hilton Spa Resort. I know it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. You know, it's so nice. Have you been to it? Yeah. Only um, we did the one. One of the years we were there. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there's a thing called the Golf News Fun Drive. So we had a jeep when we were there, and we used to spend a lot of time in the desert. And my husband was really good at desert driving, and they do a two-day um, drive where you drive from Dubai through the other Emirates and you end up in Rack. So Rack is the end point. Right. If you've made it there and it's two days, you have to camp overnight in the desert for night one. And then the end point is Ras Al Khaimah. To, and, so, and so not everyone finishes because it's quite challenging. So I was doing the, he was driving and I was doing the um, navigation with map, with just paper maps. Which you, was you one, like one of those rally drivers. Hard yeah, turn left, left. Right. Yeah, we had the roof down, we had the music go. It was... It's one of those experiences that is just a one-time thing. You know, you'll never do it again. Mm. Um, but yeah, we finished in Rack, and then they have a big party at, at that hotel with, you know, great, fabulous, really good. Yeah, so, yeah no. but it's crazy when you when you when you so um, when you're driving up the the motorway or whatever it is um, on like a Thursday night. And then everyone's on the side of their cars, and you see all the fires and people making campfires and having bars. And it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy because, you know, you for miles and miles, it's just 
thousands of people just literally on the side of the motorway and they've just pulled their cars up onto the onto the onto the kind of banks and that and yeah so it's crazy but um yeah so so your husband obviously went out there with you to dubai yeah so he came out with me which again was interesting because um well it's probably still the case actually it was very unusual for um a couple to go out with the woman being the person that had the job so i had to sponsor him which caused absolute consternation at dubai customs in the airport and so on it was very much like, hang on hang on you know is this the wrong way around this isn't right how's it how is this about so the the hoops we went through in terms of paperwork were quite hilarious um he he very soon found a job when we were out there as well but actually coming through as a, as, as me being the sponsor um was seen as quite a novelty um i think i was a bit of a yeah bit of an interesting character to them in that respect they were wonderful actually and the people i worked with were amazing um, mostly Emiratis, actually. Um, yeah, they're, yeah they're, they're amazing people. They're so generous as well. generous yeah. and kind yeah. and welcoming. Yeah. Like, we had a, lo- a lovely experience with people out there. Yeah, we've got a friend now that we that, that basically lived um, near um, the, the hotel we're staying at and, and he used to come into play pool and, and, and go to the bar and stuff of an evening and we become friends with him. And, and the second time we went out with uh, out there, he then he moved down to Dubai by that point, but he come up for the night and we had a meal and then we met him the next day down in Dubai. It's really yeah, really really nice people, really really mm. nice people. So yeah, so so Dubai. So so you obviously then eventually came back. Um, That's right. With a nice tan, I assume. Indeed. <laughs> so 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 from there, um, you then went back. Was it back to the NHS from there, or, or did you work for? No, Delta? no. So um, we we we'd only planned on staying for a fairly short time, but I got an extension to the contract I was working on because we we then went to the next phase of deployment, um, and we did, you know it was a really it was great it was a successful project and made lots of really good friends and things, um, but we we'd always planned to come home, um, so it was back two and a half years, um, so I started looking for something, and at that point the national program for IT was really sort of kicking into life. Um, and obviously that was broadly my background. So um, I looked for something there and ended up um, taking a role, a project management role with a company called Perot, who I don't know if you know. No, of, I've not heard of them. Yeah, lots of people don't know. It's a, basic, it's a, it's a fairly big American company. So Ross, Ross Perot, the old famous um, politician, I believe, um, set up as a company. But we, they, they formed an arm in the UK to help uh, basically to offer project management, technical and change management services into the national programme. So they partnered up with BT for London. So look, found a project management role with them essentially. And at the time they were very small startups. So it was only about 25 of us in London. Um, amazing group of people. Again, a really nice company to work for. Um, really good um, values and, and ways of doing things. So still keep in touch with loads of those guys now we we have there's, there's drinks every year you know people are really really look out for each other i've just recently employed someone that i used to work with there because I, I was delighted that she was back on the market and said come work with me please so it's just it's a it's a real group of people that have got very a very strong set of ethics around what they do and they're just you know very very um well very competent that sounds a bit a bit naff but just really good at what they do and care about what they're doing. So I enjoyed working for them, but um, most of that really was me working effectively in BT sort of fronted roles. So program managing um, the implementation of Cerner Millennium and um, the Rio community project as well at London Trusts. 
Ah, so was you working on the client side, but on behalf of BT then? So basically, BT has the prime contract with um, Cerner for the for the London deployments, and then obviously they could then that allowed them then to bring in other people to support them in areas where they didn't have the expertise. So for the fit with Perot was was to provide the sort of project and change leadership, um, and BT being more obviously more technical, so they they concentrated more on the um, the hardware and the software releases and and the testing and that kind of area. So it was just a, a bringing together of resources that had you know had complementary skill sets, I guess. Uh, interesting. So you know, let's fast forward a little bit. So so from there. Um you know, shortly after you, you went in then to your mm-hmm. CIO role at West Hearts. So how did it feel when you, you landed that role? Oh, really weird because it was never a plan. So it, it felt so off kilter from what I'd ever thought I would be doing. It was quite unusual. And, and, and I think because of the way it, I was lucky in the way it came around with a, you know, supportive CEO who wanted to introduce that role into the organisation, having not had one before, but was forward thinking enough to say that digital is really important. So we, we sort of shook hands really on let's try this as a, a role for the organisation and see if it's what it needs. So was there not an IT director role in the role previously to you? Was you the, 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 the top person in IT before that? Yeah, they'd had an IT director. Um, but I think, you know, where she was coming from was like she could see the transformational requirements around digital rather than it being a bit more technical. So she'd always wanted to have a CIO, I think. Um, I'd been in the role, um, effectively IT director and program manager for, for a while. Um, and it was one a case of, well, we'll, we'll trial it if you like, um, as an interim position. And then, uh, that we, we, we were all pleased with the way that was going. So we then advertised for fully for the role. And I went and, um, interviewed along with external candidates for the role was a permanent thing. Yeah, it makes sense. So, so I assume then the the role previously or the directive that was in before that was more focused all around your network, networks, your infrastructure, um, not necessarily on how you can use tech as the enabler for you know, transformation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was really challenging because as a trust, um, it, at the time it was in special measures, so there was a lot of focus on um, working around getting that getting the trust out of special measures. Um, the IT infrastructure was like a lot of trusts, hugely underinvested. Um, so, you know, some of my triumphs would not seem like in comparison with maybe what I'm doing now or what other trusts are doing massive. But, it, you know, it was things like really increasing the profile of digital in the organisation, um, bringing in um, business cases to spend, you know, multiples more than had ever been spent um, on, on that. So, you know, a good example being. Um, getting a full business case approved by NHS Improvement to um, completely redo the infrastructure. So new networks, new, new new devices, servers. You know all of the all of the bits that feel quite boring to 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 the, maybe to the wider trust, but are fundamental. That was huge for us. And then I think the other really important bit from uh, from a West Hearts perspective is was picking up the information and performance portfolio. And um, I had an absolutely brilliant um, head of performance and information uh, who, and between the two of us, we got kind of rebuilt all of that. And we were really proud of where we landed in terms of the information offering out to the clinicians, uh, the way that they could support, you know, real time patient tracking lists, things they just hadn't had. Um, 
and, and through nobody's fault it just the capability hadn't been there uh, and it, it was amazing what you know we were able to to build on that front and it and that's been giving them such a strong base now for a really really good information offering um, and that wasn't something I'd ever really been near before information and performance in that, that depth um, so that yeah I was really proud of where that landed as well awesome awesome so you achieved a lot then and now moving on now to your, your CIO role at the Royal Marsden, you know, how different was that going into it? Because, you know, as, as far as I remember, you were, was it outstanding when you joined or did yeah, it go to outstanding yeah. um, after you joined? No, outstanding. I think, um, I think it, yes, I think it was actually beforehand. Uh, hmm, I'd have to check that, but it certainly was in a number of areas. But now, yeah, now the rating is outstanding across across the board. So I think it did... It jumped. It did jump up actually. In the, in the time I've been here, it's jumped up another level. Um, incredibly different. So that was part of the you know the the interesting appeal of it. I think just that that complete difference. There was also that tug of the fact that it's got a very um, it's very heavily based in science and research, um, and so that felt a little bit of a homecoming type thing. You know, back to around things that really excited me when I started out career wise. So thinking about you know some of the um the research that's done here i'd sort of dabbled in some of that in the past so i it, it automatically was interesting some of the genomics and you know the genetics research and and that kind of thing um i suppose yeah. for you it's probably you know nice to to get back into almost kind of that scientific research organization that specialist organization because there's so much in depth and, and so much of that's used within the organization because it's, it's mm. a cancer specialist trust i mean that, that that's a that's a big part of the appeal i think that the difference between the two it, it, which was was another interesting one was to say well you know from a from a west hearts perspective it was all of us fighting tooth and nail to get the funding we needed to do to A, do some of the basics and then do some of the, you know, really fantastic stuff on top of that with an absolutely brilliant board of, of executives. They were, you know, they, and they were and are a brilliant bunch of people to work with. So real excitement, real willingness, real, real um, drive to change with funding being a fight and a challenge and a push all of the time with all everything else competing, um, you know, just around things like basic infrastructure, um, physical infrastructure improvements, fire doors, um, new pieces of kit, buildings that are crumbling, you know, all, all of that sort of thing that's very challenging in that environment. To then come into an organisation where the funding's been ring-fenced for digital change, you have, you know, private patient income, which helps to fund the NHS side of the organisation. So there's an autonomy in terms of decision-making around what you spend that I hadn't seen before. So that was very, obviously very appealing. The interesting challenge that then comes with that was has all was and has always been an organization that's already outstanding what is it that you're going to do that's going to jump up a level on a digital side you, if that makes sense yeah yeah do we had a chat about this didn't we because i think the 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 thing that i mm. perhaps resonate with and 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 kind of the questions that i immediately ask are for an organisation that's outstanding, how how do you engage clinical staff and the clinical workforce and others that have already been rated the best they can be rated? And how now does it go from, you know, let's use 
digital to enhance or better our service. So, so, so how do you kind of get the clinical team or the clinical workforce bought into what you're doing on a digital perspective? So we've so we, that was going that was actually we were having some brilliant conversations around that um, even pre-COVID. So you know finding the things that excite people here is really important and it, and it's different for different people. So there's still that challenge of actually the network's not fast enough. I'd love to be able to log in in less than you know five minutes. That that exists. Um, what's what's amazing about here is it exists and people just work with it and still get an amazing job done. Now, for them, your, your selling point, therefore, then is, but if we improve all of that, that basic infrastructure for you, you're going to be able to see even more patients than you do now and give them the same level of outstanding care you're giving them. So, you know, it's not been about, um, it, it can be as simple as that. It can be, we will free up more of your time to see more people and, and do more of this great care. That's, that's a simple message. And that's been, that's landed well. Then, but then if you start talking to um, some of the researchers and some of the, you know, really high profile, amazing surgeons and others that we have here, then, then it's about what tools do you need to just jump up another level on research, for example? What do you need to remain competitive as one of the top cancer centres in the world? What can we digital do for you to keep you in, you know, you know keep your profile there, raise your profile, give you what you need? You could argue, um, in, at least insofar as if you think about things like, for example, the um, the private patient, especially some of the very, very specialist offerings, there are you know a number of centres offering um, treatment, and people can people with you know that are privileged enough to have the money to do that can choose where they go, and they will absolutely do the right research and look to see where they get offered the best outcomes and the best care. So keeping yourself or providing the tools for clinicians to keep maintaining that level of service is really important. So, and that, and that helps to drive then the opportunity to continue to do that great research, continue to invest. So, you know, from my perspective, tooling people like that up is hugely important and contributes right across everybody in the organization. So you're sort of, you're ba- you know, you're balancing that out to make sure you can offer something to everyone. And so we've worked really hard at, describing our strategy taking our strategy from uh, a more sort of dry view of what we could give people to what do you need what would make you even better what would keep us seeing people and improving outcomes and doing x y and z and then listening to clinicians and saying and help just helping them essentially it might be as simple as they need you know storage space or uh, they need a cloud platform or they need whatever it is Go and, ha- go and openly engage and have that conversation and listen and then come back with ideas to help them. And ultimately, COVID's accelerated that. So we've, we've ha- probably had far even more clinical engagement, I would say, than we had started to get because we've needed to put digital in at scale. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because, you know, take away mm. all the, the kind of tragedy of, of COVID and you know, the, the heartache and the pain that it's caused because of, you know, a huge amount of deaths. But what it has enabled, and I had a conversation, similar conversation with David Wallacher about this. Um, what it has enabled is is that kind of bureaucracy, that red tape, the politics to be removed because there's been an absolute necessity to transform services at pace to deliver in a way that's 
acceptable in this new normal period yeah i, th- I think there's an there's a there's a yeah I, I i think in fact and i've had conversations with some of our um some of our sort of leadership team and and some of our sort of lead clinicians subsequently and yeah i think you know the whole thing of necessity being the mother of, of invention and that kind of thing is, is true actually so i think because we had to jump into some of the solutions we'd probably been nudge nudge discussing so you might have said i don't know the best example i've got here actually is our multidisciplinary team meetings so you can imagine with the complexity of some of the cases we're seeing you'd have you know many people on a multidisciplinary call um, going through a list of patients looking at treatment options and that might also then include you know a clinician from st george's another one from epsom st helia whatever it is you might have 20 to 30 people who had traditionally, at least from a Marsden perspective, been probably sat in a room at the Royal Marsden around fairly old equipment, not great video conferencing kit. Um, And I've sat in on a few of their MDT meetings with, you know, paper lists of patients and then pulling up information from clinical systems on screens around the room. So doing a great job, but not with the best tools in the world. Um, Clearly, um, we've been pushing them in the direction of actually we're going to be guys will be getting Microsoft Teams. You'll be able to start doing these multidisciplinary teams wherever you are, like we're doing now. Um, and it will be, you know, it's going to be great. And now, of course, they're traditionally rooted in that contact and that room together and knowing where, the, where they're going to be able to get data from and knowing that they'll have everything they need um, to then to say, you know give them this utopia but not actually be able to show them it yet was we knew it was going to take time to do some persuasion clearly you know we hit march and there was no there was no choice but to put something in place that allowed them to have distanced multidisciplinary multidisciplinary team meetings so we did and we had a couple of hiccups but they've embraced it like you wouldn't believe and they've you know now saying please don't go back absolutely fair play to them they've been really patient and pragmatic and sensible with it so we've had you know a hand, a genuinely a handful of people who have struggled we've put some support in around them um, and you know given them a bit of one-to-one tuition or gone and replaced their laptop whatever it takes to ensure that you know so within a, i think within a week we'd got all of the multidisciplinary team meetings running off of a platform that they could run it you know sit and do from anywhere they they were image sharing they you know they're really they've really embraced it and they're now coming and saying i just don't want to go back to that you know that crowded room with old kit i want us to keep doing what we're doing now so yeah that would have taken probably you know best part of six months to persuade people to try it but we they had no choice but to pitch in with both feet and get on with it that's incredible really if you think about it because um you know what it just means that digital transformation as a whole has really been able to be deployed at such a pace that we're not used to it's brought forward innovation so much so you know incredible really so let's move on to i want to understand is it like a bit more about kind of you know you and and your team and leadership so first of all like how how big is your team it's around it's probably about at the moment it's about 50 55 and what does leadership mean to you then but particularly kind of good leadership because i suppose you know it, you've got the good and bad leaders and 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 perhaps in many cases the bad leaders stick out more than the good leaders so so first of all what, what does good leadership mean for you 
<laughs> that's a good that's a really good question and it's something that it takes time to learn isn't it doesn't it so you know having been in fairly sort of in spent a number of years in sort of fairly fairly autonomous roles and then you know certainly program managing you're kind of in charge of delivering something so you have a don't you you have a a defined set of things that have to be achieved and you get on and achieve them and yes you you know you try and lead teams to do that but ultimately your ambition is to get a product or a system over the line and get it in and working and that's your imperative the thing i found challenging about that was then shifting to being the person that says this is what we need to do and here's how i'd like us to do it off you go and i'll support you and i'll have you you know i'll have your back to get this done so that that was probably that takes a little bit of learning and a bit of time and you're it's you spent you know for me at least i spent a lot of time thinking about people that i knew that had done that really well or i i saw as you know role models in terms of the way they led um, and i met a few people like that on the national program so and and, and actually i learned from people that did, i felt didn't do it particularly well as well so things i wouldn't do so who would you say that you learn more from then you you're good leaders or you bad leaders absolutely both because you learn something from all of it don't you yeah definitely so i've had you know i've had difficult people i've worked with in the past where actually they've still taught they still teach you something um and it might be teaching you a different style a different way of um, presenting yourself a different way of putting problems across and, and solutions um and then again also from the good, some of the great people learning how to be more empathetic and understanding in the way you you work with people so I kind of learned from that, I suppose. I, Style-wise, I would always want to um, give as much autonomy as possible to my teams and give them as much headspace as I can um, as you've moved up the management layers, if you like. You know, I've, I had a great, I had an absolutely brilliant um, manager in the, on the National Programme for IT who essentially said, look, I know you can do your job. I've seen it. I'm, I'm absolutely confident you're going to do it. Get out there and do it. It's all right for you to make some mistakes. I've, but essentially I've got your back here the next level up um, I'll keep I'll keep that umbrella and I'll keep you you know supported and I'll keep them off your back if you're doing what I need you to do which you are and we it was almost um, it was nice it was like having somebody that you just knew you could go and have an open conversation with and trust and trust but also you knew full well supported you and would advocate for you so I, I kind of learned a lot about going into back for your teams there um, and just letting them get on with their job, get hire good people, and then let them do the job. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's so important. You've you've got to give people the autonomy to kind of make stuff happen themselves, right? Less easy to do. It's less easy to do because you, you know, you take an, you that, and that's what's difficult, isn't it? Because you take that you take a large element of risk on yourself then, and you you're placing a lot of trust in the people that you've brought in to do something but if you don't do that you, you know you don't get the job you don't get the job done in a meaningful way nicely put really nicely put i think that um you've uh, you, you've explained that that really well so what's then been some of the most challenging times in your oh, career well the national program for it broadly was challenging that's even having taken on two like so this cio role is the first time this organization's had one as well so you could argue they're quite challenging positions to be put in but actually i would say the national program for it was probably the most challenging job i've ever done um just because it was a you know it, it was a really 
it was great ambition and it was you know it was the right it felt like the right thing to do but it was so fraught and difficult and political and challenging and you you know my in my role I was bridging between um, the supplier and the trust side with a natural affinity to wanting to make sure that the NHS and the trust were getting what they needed but an absolute um, requirement if you like to deliver what I needed to deliver for the supplier so I you often felt in quite a you felt in a, in a in between a rock and a hard place a fair bit so there was a lot of learning there about how you work across multiple stakeholders and difficult groups um, and try and bring them together to a common goal and the same was in actually it was the same in Dubai to be fair um, but it was particularly challenging on the national program and I would by no means be the only person that would tell you that was a challenging program of work but it really was um, that's probably career-wise those have been the most difficult periods I think and then similarly I, I think as well at West Hearts we had um, you know where we were working through some of the challenges around uh, information performance and, and the basic infrastructure there was a lot uh, there to sort of unpick and work on and I learned a lot there as well about um, being very very honest and transparent with people in particularly in my own team who um, you know th there were there were some challenging think conversations to be had there were difficult things to fix and um, and make right and it was about being very very authentic in the way you had those conversations um, and that then that they, your team could see that all the way through to the board um, and being you know creating an environment I guess where people could come and tell you something had gone wrong and that they might have made a mistake actually and, and they needed some, some help fixing it and those are those that's hard because you're then taking that on yourself to make sure it gets fixed and trust you know trusting yourself and your team to get it done but that you know that's the same in in, in any jobs isn't it but I think I think on the national program it was probably more challenging all right then well the opposite of the scale what's your your proudest moment do you think oh gosh that's a really good question becoming a CIO surely has got to be up there yeah probably probably yeah I mean I think I think actually I, it would be it would be fair to say actually being getting to a CIO position which I've never intended to um in an organization that didn't have one felt really special and important as much for the the profile of the organization and the and digital in healthcare as well as, as for me personally um obviously getting getting my master's degree back in the day and working at UCLH was particularly special I did I got to travel and do research and do some, meet some pretty amazing people as well and Dubai was just something that I would never have seen myself doing um and we you know we got the project over the line on time on budget uh culturally a really interesting and, and fantastic experience um so that that was we were proud of, I was proud of getting that done I was very proud of getting that cool done. so um you're chair of the London CIO council aren't you I am. Tell me about that. So um, we've, uh, in fact, we need to get started on meetings again because we've been obviously, I've uh, got all gone virtual. Um, so I, I got into that through, um, I'm trying to think how good. Oh, I know. Yes. Yeah. So when I was at West Hearts, I was generously offered to go attend those meetings because I was inside the M25. <laughs> that was the criteria that allowed me to be close enough to London. Um, and it's a really nice welcoming community. So generally the CIO community, I'm sure you've seen that, 
you know, people are willing to put themselves out there and support their peers and help them out. So I, because I was quite new to the CIO game at the time, I was, I didn't really have a network and I was new to the job um, and the job hadn't existed. So I was a bit fishing around on my own to understand what I should be like <laughs> and how I should do things. So I, I, I really readily took that opportunity to go and start attending those meetings. So do you think, you know, the fact that you hadn't been a CIO before, hadn't had that kind of person that you'd reported into that was a CIO before, it actually helped you in a way because you were then able to really put your own stamp on it to become the CIO that you wanted to become rather than a mirror image of something that you've looked at yeah, before. Possibly, actually. That's a fair point because you've got that ch- you've got that chance, haven't you, to craft out how you think it might it's, it's daunting and it's daunting and great at the same time actually because it was quite it was quite nerve-wracking not knowing quite what my you know what, what I should be crafting but at the same time it's nice to have that opportunity so yeah you're right you're, you're if you're given the chance to with you know the for a blank sheet of paper to start a to start a portfolio that's lovely um it's a yeah I think it's probably an opportunity for mm. you to, to do that but at the same time have that peer networking group where yeah. you can bounce ideas you can learn and you can um you know almost use the group a little bit and i don't mean it uses in is in, in in a kind of a bad sense but use the group's knowledge yeah. to really help pan out what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve and what perhaps they're doing that actually think oh that's a good idea i'll bring that back into my organization mm, i think you're right because you then you know that the, the lovely thing about then getting into circles like that is exactly what you described so you start to see people doing the role that you're now newly doing who've been doing doing that for some time and you can go and you know just bounce ideas around or ask questions people are very generous with their time on, on that in that regard they want you to be successful um, so it just felt it was a really nice warm environment to just be me and be a little bit vulnerable and then and then go back with ideas to the team so it, it was a really nice space so I enjoyed going to those and carried on um got really friendly with um the guys that were running it at the time and just again it's a bit like the Dubai thing it's I think I, I tend to think I've just like tripped into various bits of career it's very odd but it it was one of those things where the um the then vice chair had, had moved on um, and, w- and was leaving and going into um, another role abroad. Um, so would I be interested in just in, in, in that role? And I thought, Do you know what? I abs- yeah, absolutely, I would. Um, so I took that on. Uh, not long that long after the chair then announced he was heading off to Microsoft. Um, and as the vice chair, the vote was put out to say, you know, are you interested in taking the chair role for a couple of years? And I thought, sure. And we put it out to a vote. And um, probably because people thought, oh, good, thank God, someone else is doing it. Um, vote, vote was in. So I, I, I stepped into that really because of that, um, from, from that perspective. And then, again, it's moved again because um, Sonia Patel's been the uh, vice chair with me for a period. And she's now off being the national NHSX CIO. So I'm looking for a new vice chair now. There's been a bit of ch- a bit of change and churn, but it's been a really great environment. We've built it. We've worked hard on trying to get more uh, more people in. Change, you know, interesting topics. Um, we've got a good sponsorship um, model now, so we we look at those sponsors that we have being partners with us. They come into all of our meetings. They'll bring in ideas, innovation, 
um give well, us like tech talk. tech suppliers that are sponsored yeah yeah. Underneath, so, right? yeah that's right so we go out for sponsorship on a every year or so i think it's every couple of years and then those guys will you know help us in terms of the uh, physical locations for the meeting the lunches that kind of thing yeah and then we you know but they're a full part of the of the group yeah and i think i think it's important that um, and I'm, it's timely that you've mentioned suppliers and so on, because I'm going to come on to that now. But um, I think it's important that, you know, that they, there can be a them and us feel in so many environments between those that are client yeah. side and those that are supplying services into that. And I think true innovation and kind of is when everyone's, it's a partnership approach and, and, and it's one ecosystem um, and that, everyone's doing it for the better of the sector rather than yeah. um you know create making a quick buck from the supplier side or, or i think you're right i mean yeah. it's been a difficult it's been difficult hasn't it because there's been you know people have had varying experiences we all have haven't we and mm. people and that you know you find some people are naturally suspicious of that and and i understand why you know we've all had that we've all had been burnt by you know poor suppliers or, or or poor supplier management actually from to be fair on the part of the nhs as well but mm, you, mm. you've got to take you know you, uh, when you do build that touch spend that time and build those networks and build that trust of you know trusted partnership model it comes to absolutely comes to the fore in times like now where you know we've had great help from some of our um, the suppliers we've built that kind of relationship with to just you know pitch in and help us put solutions in really quickly so it does pay dividends on on both sides. It's got to be it's got to be a mutually agreeable you know relationship. The idea that everybody should fall at the knees of the NHS rather than there need to there needs to be something in it for them as well. So you you've got to understand that and have a bit of a bit of commercial acumen to understand where those suppliers are coming from, and um, to build something that works for both, haven't you? Yeah, of course, of course. I suppose it's like it's, it's a bit like at my event, right? You know, the NHS mm. side of it, they come for free and we pay for their meals and refreshments and accommodation and so on and give them access to the conference. But as part of that, suppliers are there and they fund it. And we, we put in some meetings where suppliers can say, right, well, this yeah. is what we've been working on over the last 18 months. Could it be a help for your trust? And, you know, and that's really the obligation that I expect as the organiser is that people don't just attend those meetings for the sake of getting you know saying well i yeah. attended those meetings jack uh, attend with an open mind because you don't know where that conversation can lead to and it could mean right. that you know let's say it's something i don't know someone that helps with sepsis management or, or technology mm. around that. you could save lives with that or you or, or whatever it might be that could save the nhs yeah. millions of pounds so so i think these these conversations and, and you're completely right there's a level there's a level of of commercial acumen that's needed and you'll be so surprised the amount of people that just lack that and lack the common sense behind, right, do not get this this kind of agreement that we're in. Yeah, so that's, you know, I mean, that, exactly, exactly that. So we've, we've tried to, we've worked really hard on that and we're introducing more of the sort of uh, elements of professionalisation as well. So we had, a, before all of, uh, before we had to shut down um, the physical meetings, our last one, we talked about um, uh, BCS and Chime membership and, and professionalization of CIOs and how we might take that forward as a group we've been getting uh, having regular slots with um, the London one London program to come in and talk to us about what they're doing and for us to have you know good open dialogue about how we contribute to that so it started to sort of get some good pace actually around really interesting topics and with a good attendance 
Um, I'm now going to have to get, we, we, we did a podcast for the la, in, in lieu of the last meeting um, where we talked about the Nightingale and, and, and the London response. And that was, that was good. And um, Digital Health Hopes did it for us. But I need to now get some virtual meetings back in the diary because obviously uh, we won't be meeting in person for a while again. Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. I think Which I think that was actually what a large part of the, um, the the joy of doing that was that we'd have the meeting, we had a networking lunch to start, and then people, a lot of people, would hang on at the end and just go, you know, just go and have. You don't go out and get drunk together, together basically. Very you sensible, just you know, fancies <laughs> all around, but just that that nice opportunity for people to just yeah. have some little breakout conversations and really catch up. So. Yeah. Group and actually probably sometimes not talk about work right yeah absolutely yeah talk about the kids or the holidays or whatever they're doing yeah and, and these are bonds that you know particularly in this type of industry in these types of jobs you just need mm. Mm. you know even saying you know having said the national program for it was the hardest job i've ever done just standby it's also formed some of the most amazing you know friendships and yep. professional groups that i've ever had so yeah. if you can get through, you know, you get through that really difficult period and you've still got those connections and those support networks, it, it's absolute, you know, it's a godsend really when it's like yeah. this. Definitely, definitely. So, so, so moving on to kind of some, some stuff about what, what I want to talk about is your, is your basically your email inbox because um, I had a, had a conversation with. Have you been a, looking at it? Well, no, no, no. Uh, I don't want to, thank you. Um, no, you the don't. numbers, the numbers would scare you really me. Don't. Um, so I was having a chat with David Wallacher like last mm. week, um, and he was saying he gets probably, you know, three, four, up to 500 emails a day in, in, in the peaks of that. And I said to him, how many of those do you have to reply to? And he's like, a very, very small percentage, basically. Um, um, you know, is, is that a similar situation for you? Yeah, my number, my number's not as high, probably because it's a smaller organisation, I guess. But um, yeah, I'd agree with like, Percentage-wise, in terms of what you respond to, it's low. Mm. And the thing that's probably, that catapulted us a bit and that has reduced my inbox has been, we pushed out, we had to push out Teams really quickly. Um, so we, we pushed out Microsoft Teams and Office 365 to the, we, we were already piloting it and there's a, my team were all, had all been on it for months. Yep. So our internal email traffic as a team had reduced dramatically anyway. Um, we then put all of the leadership team and the COVID response team onto, onto it very quickly as well. So we did start to see emails drop. Um, Why is that? Because it's like more instant messaging or something. Yeah, people were doing much. I mean, I've got, I, I did some graphs recently just to show that and it, it's insane the amount where we've gone, you know, just uh, the, it's, it's like a massive, great, um, hike in the terms of the meetings like this and then also just instant messaging between teams of people yeah so email did drop in fact i need to get some stats on that because that, that's going to be a really interesting thing um but yeah the still the numbers are really high and a lot uh, there's a lot of it's been this sort of covid emails now so southwest london emails understandably national emails emails from colleagues suppliers looking to see if they you know can they help? Is there anything we're interested in? Broadly, they've been pretty good. There's still the odd one saying, you know, I'd love to meet with you for a coffee on Tuesday. Have you got half an hour? And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. Why would you think I've got half an hour right now? But broadly, you know, there's not there's not really been a, a tone deaf reaction to that. It's been pretty good. But yeah, yeah. I, I'd say it's improving on what I had had, but it's still a large number of emails. 
how many of those that you get then are are basically salesy type emails from suppliers trying to promote their service or trying to set up conversations? Quite a large number, actually. Must Do they work? No, broadly, no, if I'm honest. So what, what advice would you give? Because I think the, the audience of this podcast will be NHS leaders like yourselves and others. Um, um, but, but also as well, you know, health tech suppliers and IT suppliers mm. that service the public sector industries. Um, so what, what advice would you give to, to, to those people that are listening? Because I know for a fact that, you know, if you get a cold call off a number that you haven't got saved in your phone, you're never going to answer it. Um, um, you, the emails, you get so many that, again, almost, almost pointless. Um, mm. Yeah, people that have action, and, and, and obviously, as, as you said before, you know, suppliers have massively helped you through this pandemic um, um, because it's it's their tech that have enabled the transformational yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. needs that, that have, have, have been needed. Um, so h- how, how should a supplier get hold of Lisa Emery, basically, if they've yeah, got... Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I don't, you don't want to sound like you're, you know, you're a bit computer says no, because I don't, I don't mean that at all. So I tend to get... I, I, if I get a bit of downtime to have a look in the evenings, I might, you know, I always, I, I always sift and read through every email unless it's a, you know, blatantly just a cold, a Copy cold and email, paste jobby. you know, that dear Emery or something with, you know, I tried to call, you know, you didn't, that kind of thing. You just, you know, I push them to one side, but if it, if that's a, you know, legitimate looking email, things like for me that I, I well, might hook me in or be, just some of the keywords that are in there that might be something I'm interested in, but also maybe links to uh, white papers or, you know, interesting uh, articles or, or, or um, you know, we've, we've been working with this trust and here's some information about that. So I, I don't, I certainly don't just automatically discard. I will, I'll go and look at it a bit later in the day or, you know, maybe over the weekend and think, Act, you know, actually I'm going to stick a flag on that one. That looks like that might be quite interesting and then go off and do a little bit of a read up. And perhaps get then get back to that person or talk to a colleague who I know might have been working with them, mm. um, and then and then respond back. But the ones that the ones that probably get you know a pretty short shrift are, are the ones that come in and say where you get that nag, you know, weekly nag that says, you know, I I, I was hoping you'd be available this week for half an hour to meet Bob about X, and 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 then no context to it, no mm. no hook. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and I, and I know that's difficult. I know that's difficult, yeah, but yeah, some of them are quite um, yeah, they just they just don't they don't draw you in, do they? Quite bland. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there we go. So if you want to get hold of Lisa, uh, <laughs> copy in an article, case study, or white paper, and you've got a. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it depends if it's an interesting one. Yeah, but no, I, I mean, I, I, and I'll also, I'll also sort of, I do tend to seek out what other colleague, you know, peers and things have been doing, working on, and I'll, I'll happily pick the phone up to to suppliers anyway myself. But yeah, I have, I have definitely made, you know, connections through with people from emails, but they, they kind of need to grab you in that sea of of um information as i'm sure i'm sure others have said to you as well but yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's you know it's a similar very similar uh situation and and um when i said to david he realized that he'd let himself in for a whitewash of uh thingy and he started to try and backtrack on what he was saying and i said you're, you're trying to dig get out of that hole you've dug yourself in now haven't you uh so it's quite <laughs> funny um so one thing i wanted to ask you about was mm-hmm. 
about you know you being um, a woman in tech, uh, a female CIO. Um, do you think that your journey's been harder because you're female to become a CIO, or in 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 in, in some cases easier because perhaps diversity reasons or whatever? Yeah, no, I, I would I would say so, and it was probably similar, probably even similar back in the day to some extent in the in scientific side of things, maybe less so, but. I think, yeah, that's always been that's always been a challenge. So, whilst it's improved over the time I've been a CIO, certainly when I first, you know, started out in in this sort of career area, you'd you'd often just be walking into rooms that were largely full of men. Um, mm. So you you know there was always that element of, I mean, broadly speaking, I, I know I am personally, and and when I talk to other colleagues, you know, you get that whole imposter syndrome problem anyway. Did you feel intimidated um, walking into a room full of men? Yeah, yeah, to some degree. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, I'm fairly, I'm fairly sort of um, outspoken and, you know, I've got a thick skin. Outspoken? Never would have guessed that. Never. But, you know, <laughs> I've, got a pretty, I've got a pretty thick skin. But yeah, you do. You do. Because I think your, your natural assumption is that that must be a group of people that knows more than you. And mm. most of them don't look like you. Um, and and actually, that's brought into massively sharp relief, more so now. And when when I talk to colleagues that are you know people like and you'll you'll know obviously know the Shuri network and others, so really advocating for people of colour in careers. And mm. um, when you start talking to people where they've had the struggle of being a female in this career, piled on and putting on top of that being a female of colour in this career. Mm. you can you know it, it, it's it's incredibly difficult so the there was a really powerful um talk at the uh digital health summer school um i'm trying to think it was last year it would have been last year they launched the shuri network yeah um, and you know there, there was one um chief nursing information officer of color female in the entirety of the country wow. so if you put where i thought I, how i felt about being a woman in a room largely of men you know that's that's just another difficulty and, and another challenge on top of that so i'm really supportive of of trying to help promote that network and see how we can improve things yeah um yeah, but there's a lot of that has been about how do you go back into schools and colleges and and so on and then just really try and a listen but b help promote people so you know, some of the some of my male colleagues as well have been brilliant in terms of saying, well, I'm not going to go to, I'm not going to speak, agree to speak at, or I'm not going to go to events where you, you just basically got, for example, an all white male panel as, mm. as a good example, or an all male panel on topic areas, you know, full well, there are a breadth of people that could speak to that, that, that I think has improved significantly, but it used to be off, you know, often be the case that I'd go to events and they would be mostly men. Yeah, well, I, 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 I consciously tackle my unconscious bias. Um, and I think so, it's really important to do that. I think you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, so, you know, um, and I had a conversation with Richard Stubbs, who's the chief executive mm. of um, the Yorkshire and Humber AHSN network. Um, I had a conversation with him at dinner. Um, and I said to him, is, is that wrong that I'm, because I, because I think, I think half the problem and, and, and actually with it, it's quite in, in, in tune with this kind of Black Lives Matter movement as well. Yeah. Is, is half the problem for, for white people and particularly white men is, I don't think, I think, I don't think we know what is the wrong or the right thing to do or act. And, and I think 
by by not knowing that we don't want to put ourselves on the line and say the wrong thing mm. and by then most most of the time we just shut up and don't say anything and so i was having a conversation with, about diversity with him and and how that i mm. and i said but i said is that is that a good thing that i you know that i actively go out and look for a person of color to 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 speak at my event whereas i don't necessarily actively go out and specifically find a white person to speak my mind and he said no no it's absolutely right that you're doing that because you're tackling your unconscious bias yeah. um and, and i think it's the same with 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 actually any um you know with any minority in any sector whether it be women in, in technology yeah. or yeah. people of color in in technology or in any profession in fact that that's and and, and same with women actually um so I think you're right i mean i've met some really good people who have you know, through career-wise, who have been re really strong advocates and have, have done exactly that and have come and said, actually, you know, gone, gone to uh, conference organisers and someone said, you know what, you, you, know, you need to tackle yourself on this. You need to look yourself in the mirror. Are you asking the right people along? Go out. And, and then they will then promote names of people that they know that would equally speak well to a topic. So they'll say, you didn't ask her. You didn't ask this person. I, I suggest you do. And actually I'd be interested in a conference that included this person. So how about it? So it's that kind of thing um, where, you know, make the effort and, and we've been talking about this as a team, actually, you know, li listening and educating yourself mm. and, and then asking how you can help and what you should be doing. Mm. So, you know, the whole idea that you go in on a, you, you plough in with what you think the right thing to do is. We need to listen, don't we? Listen, understand, educate, and then and then help and do the right thing. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Mm. So and, yeah, yeah. Cool. And say so the last point though is you know is what why do you feel it's important to promote um, women in technology? Then uh, it's it's important for so many reasons, but it's like anything, isn't it? You the richness of the teams that you build in terms of the diversity that you have in those teams gives you far more depth of thinking, of, of thinking styles, of approaches, of representation of the people you are giving the services to, yep. that you will, you will provide a far better service by having an inclusive and diverse team of people and, and different ways of thinking, what, whatever type of diversity that might be. Um, you, that that is gives you a richness of a leadership team and a richness of a service offering that will you know is far more likely to provide what people need um and, and it's so important that you do that that mm. to me you know that you, you're not you're not giving you're not mirroring society are you if you don't do that you're not actually mirroring the society the, the group of people you're offering you, you're offering your services to if you mm. don't have that representation in that that yeah. way of thinking yeah didn't think about it like that but it's so true um do you think that you've been you know part of your role as a as a lady cio um you know do you feel like you're bound to promote tech for ladies um, yeah the, yeah to some degree that, I, I do that. yeah no i think you're right because there's that whole thing isn't there about not pulling up the ladder so you've had opportunity and you've and yes you've had to work for it and you've had support along the way to get there so I think there's a duty of care to continue to do that for future generations of people. Mm, mm. So do you, have you, to, do you have to tackle almost a, um, a bias in the other way then? That's that's kind of because you're a, <laughs> um, a lady CIO, 
do you, do you, do you feel like perhaps a lady would be more likely to get a job with you and you have to tackle that unconscious bias because um, because you, you you might overlook a man because they're a man? It's certainly something to think about, isn't it? I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's been the case because I've got I've got a really strong mix of of um, yeah. both male and female um, leaders in my team, but. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I would I would always check myself with and make sure I wasn't doing. You're right. Yeah. You have got to you you just got to keep keep learning, haven't you? And keep mm. asking. Yeah. And definitely. be honest with yourself. It, and that's I know that's not easy. Um, and I know some. You're, you're right to your point earlier. Sometimes it feels easier, doesn't it, not to say anything for fear of saying the wrong thing. And actually, that that isn't going to make change. That's not going to take things forward. Probably half the problem, in fact yeah mm. yeah so yeah awesome okay cool cool so um uh, talk to me then uh, kind of about um your, your personal life now so um so you, you live in london don't you yeah i just moved in uh last summer actually so you you ride um, your bike to work every day don't you i do ride my bike to work every day now yes yeah i, I know that because i've got you on strava um, oh you got me on Strava yeah <laughs> oh god so you can see the speed at which I know it's only it's only a yeah. short cycle yeah it's only about 15 minutes or so yeah no um, I weren't stalking you don't worry you must have thinking <laughs> I did notice that? you were on there actually yeah, I'm gonna start checking your room um, there we go times yeah. out as well yeah yeah you'll see that I'm pretty slow too so uh, don't <laughs> worry um so 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 you live in London um you've got children yeah. what's your, your family no no haven't got kids um just fairly got, got a lockdown kitten so that's keeping us on yeah. our toes yeah <laughs> I'm allergic to cats so I'd never get oh a kitten. no yeah oh, no, you've got I, a dog uh, I can tell I've, yeah I've, yeah I've got a dog um I've got a dog called Jackson because I've got three daughters and a and a and a, and a wife-to-be um so um so uh, yeah i thought you know i'll take this opportunity just to name the dog after myself so jackson um what breed is it um so he's a sprocker spaniel so he's a uh, springer and a cocker mix um, oh, cute. Um, yeah so he's, he's such a good boy though and um um yeah he was very lively until we um we 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 done the job on him and then uh yeah mine's mine's in today actually as we speak oh really gone to the vets yeah yeah not happy about it this morning but gone to the vets yeah no um but yeah he yeah he's yeah he's so lovely he's so lovely so so yeah so um in terms of um kind of you know you've got a job with with high pressure um with a lot of responsibility um and 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 really demanding actually you know i'm, I'm sure it demands mm a lot of your your personal time um whether yeah. it's whether it's time that you spend thinking about work or time you spend working in your personal time that you perhaps shouldn't yeah well, you should be but you shouldn't be if you know what i mean no i know exactly what you mean um yeah. so so how so what what do you do to relax and unwind oh i'm dreadful at relaxing and unwinding my husband would tell you that he drives i drive him up the wall if we if we go away he'll i'll get about he says it takes you at least three days and he said, you can't switch your brain off anyway, can you? Um, and I can't. And um, to just stop deciding to find jobs to do. So he, the, yeah. he poor devil, he's a, he kind of just wants to chill at that point. And I'm still trying to find projects to run. Oh, I, do, I, think, I think his comment was, you, you really can't project manage me as well as everything else, if that's all right. <laughs> it's along those lines. But um, yeah, no, I do relax. That's not true at all. But um, yeah, it's... It's always it's always in your head, isn't it? You kind of you know yeah. if you're running a service, 
critical service at a, a hospital, then you're always going to have in the back of your mind that something might happen or go wrong or um, you, your phone's always on, that kind of thing. You're always going to do that. It's, it goes with the territory. I think. Do you turn it off when you go abroad? Uh, no. No? Which I know I should, and I tell my team to make sure they do. Um, but I'm, that just, that's just me personally. I prefer the occasional touch-in just to check how, thing, you know, how things are going, are things okay? Um, and then, um, you know, I don't, I don't spend, you know, I wouldn't spend all day on it. I just like to just touch in and check in and make sure things are all right with people. Yeah. Um, and then that's that, that actually I find more relaxing than coming back to two weeks worth of emails. That's yeah, just personal. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I wouldn't inflict that on anyone else, but that's yeah. just how I like to do things. Absolutely. And then what about any, have you got any hobbies? You into any sports? Yeah, sports-wise, let me say, I don't do any because I'm hopeless. I do. I like to cycle and I do the occasional 10K, but that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm for my sins a Watford season ticket holder, so I'm... Oh, really? Always gone to football, yeah. Yeah, so you must be pleased with your new manager coming in then because he's... Yeah, he's done around. a fab job. He's done a yeah. really good job. Yeah. Like, Le- like Leicester again, isn't it? Well, next mm. year. Well, we'll see, won't we? Because we've got the... Got the rest of the seasons to yeah, play out now behind closed true. doors, but um, yeah, yeah. I've always I've gone there since I since we moved actually since we moved to Watford when I was younger. I was I think I was about twelve, thirteen. Um, my dad's a Spurs fan, but he started taking me and my brother along to Vicarage Road because he just likes football regardless. Yeah. yeah, and it's such a lovely family club. We just used to go with him and stand in the family terrace, and I I was hooked after that. My brother yeah. wasn't. He was ho- hopeless. He just became a Spurs fan like his dad so I've lost him yeah um, no, but I, I stuck with the club yeah no I'm a Spurs season ticket holder but you're um, Spurs as well aren't you yeah, yeah. and to, to be honest I, I've got a season ticket but I, I very very rarely go now um, just just more so for family commitments than anything um, yeah I, 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 I totally sympathise with that so we'd um, been going for, for years actually and this season we started thinking what do we do about next season? Because we moved into London. It's more of a headache to go back. It, it, it was kind of losing that draw that it had. And, I think, yeah. and that's understandable, isn't it? You, times change, you, you know. But I'll never stop. I'll never not watch it. And I, I watch probably yeah, more, way more football than my husband does. But Yeah. Yeah, I do love football. I really... I'm looking forward to it coming back, even if it is. I'd remind you, I, try, I don't know about you, but I tried to watch one of the German games. Because that was yeah. one of the first leagues that stood up. Yeah, and it was. I could. I had to turn it off. Watching it in an empty stadium just felt weird. Yeah, and also as well because you're not. You know, when it's Premier League football, you, you're still. You know, regardless of who's playing, you know, because it, it might be a case where you know you've got a bottom team playing one of the top teams, and it affects mm. you know where where then you end up in the or, or you know maybe it might mean that you then have a game in hand and equal points or whatever it might be. So, you. you with the German thing, I really struggled to watch it. I only watched, I think, half a game. Um, yeah, that's all I did. Um, I think the Dortmund game, um, the first Dortmund game. I can't remember who they played. But, um, yeah, just, I don't know. It just didn't have that. that it it just didn't have that. I mean, I'm, I, I will absolutely watch, you know, wall-to-wall probably now. It's, it's gonna, and they're going to use... It's every day, noise, isn't it? It's every day. Yeah. I can't wait. I know. I'm, I'm really excited about it. But he's not. <laughs> he's like, oh, for God's sake, there's going to be nothing but football on TV. But... Um, yeah, I'm quite. I'm looking forward to it, and be hopefully um, staying up. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you've got a good chance. I think I think I think I, so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think I think you know that that momentum you had behind you is obviously um, unfortunate that, that that that's been paused. But yeah, to go from you know beating Liverpool three 0 
I know. And all of the was you at that game? Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, it's just amazing. Oh my goodness! I bet that was one of the best. No, no, we weren't. We didn't go. No, that's not true. Oh, we didn't go. In line with what you said, we was interesting. We had um, something else was going on at the same time, and actually, we said we'd started to say it's getting harder and harder to go back and keep, you know, making it to the games. And at good friends of ours, their son is a Liverpool fan, and he'd been desperate to go to a Liverpool match. The dad's not. Dad didn't mind. And I thought they're really lovely. He's a lovely kid, and his dad's great. And I knew full well we could give them our ticket, and there'd be no trouble at all. Yeah. So we did. And he was, he, oh, he bless him. He phoned up and said, "Oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm going to go to a Liverpool match." And oh, and then we got the last laugh. So we yeah, watched it. Yeah, yeah. And then I bet you, I bet you felt, <laughs> I bet you felt bad after. And oh I no, did. Was, thought I ruined this little kid's day. Broken. Yeah. So and of all the ones to not go to, but you know what? You know, you make these decisions, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. I had a similar thing where you know I'd I'd missed out on a few big games and uh, yeah, but it, anyway, it, it's is, it's fine, it's yeah. fine, and it, God, it was great to watch anyway. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Cool. Well, anyway, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. And oh, likewise, you're very good at this. Thank you very much. That's uh, really appreciated. Well, it's been great to get to know the person behind the job title. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels, as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via, as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.